0: Well, I've voted in two presidential elections. The first was in 2012, and the second was in 2016. And something I've noticed each time I've voted is that there isn't a perfect leader. Every candidate, regardless of their party, is a flawed human being. Yet I've caught myself longing for this perfect leader, and I'm, I'm sure that you all have as well. And so we all want someone who's worthy of the role that they've been put into. We want someone who will seek justice for the oppressed, who will do what's best for the people. And we want someone who's willing to lay down their pride and serve the people. I think this is why we love stories about good leaders. This is why we read or watch Lord of the Rings and long for Aragorn to take the throne, this is why we want Prince Caspian to become the king of Narnia. And then for you Disney fans, this is why we want Simba to take back over the kingdom and the Lion King. Yet even in these stories, these kings are flawed. They're not perfect. And so the question we ask is does this leader exist? And our text this morning shows us that this leader is very real. This king is not a myth or a character in a fable. He's more real than even the very breath in our lungs or the skin on our hands. He's the king who's worthy of our obedience. He's the supreme ruler over all of creation. He's not lacking because the fullness of God dwells within him. And this king is Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And our text this morning is calling us to follow him. It's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of him. Well, last time we were in Colossians, we saw that Paul was confronting a false teaching that was going around in Colossae. And this false teaching was saying that Christ wasn't sufficient. It was saying that you needed Christ plus something else. And so these false teachers taught that you needed Christ plus obedience to the Jewish food laws, or that you needed Christ plus obedience to the Jewish festivals, or that you needed Christ plus this new revelation, or you needed Christ plus severe discipline to your body. And so some modern examples of what, in a way that we might think of this, is that you need Christ plus the ability to speak in tongues to be saved, or that you need faith in Christ, plus your own works to be saved. And so we'll discuss this false teaching when we get to chapter two. But for today, we need to know this. At the heart of this false teaching, then and today, is the belief that there's something lacking in Christ. It's the belief that Christ isn't sufficient. And this wasn't, as we know, this wasn't the Christ that Paul believed in. Paul believed in a Christ who is sufficient and supreme over all things. And this wasn't merely head knowledge for Paul. That Paul taught that growing in the knowledge of this true Christ leads to walking in a manner worthy of Christ. So you see, what the Colossians believed wasn't merely at stake. That their walk, that their, the way that they lived was at stake as well. This is because what they believed affected the way that they lived. And so the same is true for us today, that if we believe in an insufficient Christ, then we'll feel crushed by his demands, that loving others will be burdensome, growing in our knowledge of Christ will be a chore, enduring through trials will be a joyless endeavor, and our thanksgiving will be empty. So MPC, if we want to live lives that honor Christ, and we need to take a deep gaze at the real Christ. We need to stare at the infinite beauty of King Jesus and be changed. And so let's look at our text this morning. In our passage, we're, we're gonna see this main idea. This is my sermon in a sentence, if you wanna write this down. It's this. Jesus is the supreme and sufficient king In creation and redemption. So, again, one more time Jesus is the supreme and sufficient King in creation and redemption. And so, as we move through this text, we're going to see three different sections. So, in verses 13 through 14, we're going to see the kingdom. And then in verses 15 through 20, we're going to see the king of the kingdom. And then finally, we'll see the citizens of the kingdom in verses 21 through 23. So again, we're going to see the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, and the citizens of the kingdom. So look with me at verse 13. Notice that it starts with saying he. So who's this referring to? We'll look up at verse 12. It, in verse 12, it says, giving thanks to the Father. So Paul's continuing here to refer to the Father. This is, if you don't know, this is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And notice what the Father's done. We see first that he's delivered Paul, Timothy, and the Colossians from the domain of darkness. That's why Paul says, us. And so this domain of darkness, as Jono said earlier, that this is the rule and authority of Satan. And so if you remember in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, and the serpent undermined their trust in God and convinced them to disobey God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of their disobedience, sin and death came into the world. And so now everyone from their line, which is you and me, by the way, is born with a sin nature and so this means that we're born with wills and desires and wants that are bent towards sin towards choosing sin over obedience to God and so Paul makes this point in Colossians 121 when he says that you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds and he, again, a couple pages before this, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, "'And you were, one, were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, "'following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, "'the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, "'among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, "'carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, "'and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the ma- mankind.'" So we're all born children of wrath. This means that we've all rebelled against God. This means that we're deserving of his wrath. Yet the text gives us good news. We see God's grace. So look what the Father has done. The text says that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And better yet, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so remember, Paul is talking to Christians here. He's talking to those that have placed their faith in Christ. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, then you're no longer part of the domain of darkness. You've been delivered by the Father from the power and authority of Satan. And you're now under the power and authority of his son, Jesus Christ, This is what the kingdom is that it's the rule of God through the reign of his son. And that reign is presently happening in the church and will one day be visible over all of creation. And so, if you're a Christian, then Jesus rules and reigns presently in your heart and the hearts of those in his church. And so, that means that King Jesus is your king, he's your Lord. And he reigns over your life. And you've been transferred into his kingdom. And so this is your reality now. And so if you've ever changed citizenships from one country to another, then you have a picture of what this is like. So while you're under the authority of a different country, you're now under the authority of this country. Yet there's some differences here that, again, we weren't, actively seeking to become citizens of the kingdom of God. Whether we want to believe it or not, we were all once actively opposed to the kingdom of God. So the question then becomes, how can rebels from one kingdom be brought into another kingdom? Does God just wipe their crimes, put them under the rug? Well, look at verse 14. It says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The whom there is referring to the Son. We're redeemed in Christ, the Son of God. And even though we deserve God's wrath, King Jesus bore this wrath for us. Our King paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. And if you've trusted in Him, then the debt that you owed Him has been forgiven and you're no longer a rebel. You've been redeemed. And it's fitting then that these verses form a foundation for what we studied last week, in verses 19 through tw- or verses nine through 12. That we don't walk in a manner worthy of Christ to get access into the kingdom. We walk in a manner worthy of Christ because we're in the kingdom. We've been redeemed. And so the proper resp- response to being redeemed by God is to worship God. And so we wanna live lives that are worthy of our king because we're thankful for what he's done. And so the question we need to ask then is, who is the king that we've been redeemed to worship? If we've been brought into the kingdom of the son, then who's the son? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us to wonder that he shows us the kingdom or the king of the kingdom in verses 15 through 20. And so many scholars believe that verses 15 through 20 were actually a hymn that the early church would sing. And so some believe that it was written prior to this letter. Others believe that that Paul wrote it for this this letter. But we can all agree with Pastor H.B. Charles when he says this, whether or not this hymn was written for corporate worship, it should lead us to worship. And so what we find in these verses is the beating heart of this letter, that everything else in this letter is gonna flow from this hymn. And so Paul wants the Colossians to worship the true Christ who's supreme in creation and in redemption. And he wants them to worship Christ with all of their lives. And so in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see Christ's supremacy in creation. Then in verses 18 through 20, we're going to see Christ's supremacy in redemption. So let's first look at Christ's suprem- supremacy in creation. In verse 15, we see that the Son is the image of the invisible God. That word image means a representation. So this word was used in the Greek-speaking world to reference a portrait of somebody. And so we see something similar in our text, but, but Jesus isn't merely a portrait of the Father. He's not just some symbol that he portrays who the Father is, because he himself is like the Father. So if we want to know what the Father is like, then we need to look to the Son, this is why Jesus tells Philip this in John fourteen nine. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews 1, 3, similarly says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That the Son is like the Father. He shares in the same divine nature. He's eternal, he's infinite, he's holy, he's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-loving. And so, if you will, the Son is the spitting image of His Father. God begets God. And this is why the author Michael Reeves wisely states this in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. There's no God living in heaven who is unlike Jesus. So if you want to know what the Father's like, then look to the Son. He's the image of the invisible God. In our text, you know, there's more to it than that, he, that he isn't just the image of the Father. But the text goes on to say that the Son is the firstborn of all creation. And so many have misinterpreted this passage throughout church history. Some have taken this text to mean that the Son was the first thing that the Father created. They might teach that the Father was big G God, And that the Son was little g God. And so, if you've ever met a Jehovah's Witness, if you have Jehovah's Witness neighbors, this is is what they believe. But this isn't what Paul means here when he calls the Son firstborn. What Paul means is that the Son has the right to all of creation, everything is the Son's because He is the Son of the Father, everything is His inheritance. And so how do we know that this is the right interpretation of that term firstborn? All we need to do is look at the next verse. The next verse starts with the word for. So this is a little tip if you're ever studying one of Paul's letters, that when we see the word for at the beginning of a verse, that means that what follows is gonna ground that previous statement. It's gonna explain it. And so why is the son the firstborn of all creation. Well, first we see that all things are created by him. That's what we heard Adam pray earlier. So this isn't some things or most things. This is all things. And this term all things is repeated again and again throughout this section. And so notice that all things includes heaven and earth. All things includes the visible and the invisible, meaning the physical and the spiritual realm. And all things also includes thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And so when Paul here is talking about thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, he's not referring to like earthly kings and kingdoms, that he's referring actually to four classes of angelic powers. And so these false teachers in Colossae probably worship These angels. If you flip over to Colossians 2.18, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So what is Paul doing here? He's undermining this belief in the worship of angels. He's saying these angels that these false teachers worship are merely creations of King Jesus He's saying that Jesus is more than a good starting point. He's the end-all and be-all of our worship. That he should be worshipped because he's supreme over all of the creation. And so the Son has the right to all things because all things are created by him. Yet second, we see that all things are created through him. And so another way to put this would be that the Son is the agent of creation. So throughout the Scriptures, we see that, that God creates and gives life through His Word. And it's fitting then that our Bibles start with this idea. So if you think back to Genesis 1, you don't have to flip there, but in Genesis 1, we see God creating by speaking. He's creating through His Word. And then in John 1, we get more clarity to this that the Son is referred to as the Word, who is in the beginning with God and who is God. Then John 1, 3 says that all things were made through the Word. Sound familiar? Well, what we see in Genesis 1, John 1, and Colossians 1 is that the Father created everything through the Son. The Son is the very agent through which the Father creates everything. And so thirdly, we see that all things are created for him. And so this means that Christ is the goal of creation. So we've all probably thought this at some point, but we've thought, what is the purpose of my life? We've probably wondered, why does everything exist? And thankfully, the Bible doesn't leave us without answers to those questions. That you and I and everything in the universe were created for Jesus. And so this doesn't mean that he needs everything that he's created. Jesus is God, he's needless. Yet everything is created for his glory, for his honor, and for his praise. And so the goal of our lives isn't to make much of ourselves it isn't to lift up ourselves over others the goal of our lives should be to worship and honor jesus by enjoying him forever to the glory of god the father he's worthy of our walks and he's worthy of having our lives fully oriented towards him why because everything is created for him. Well, we see fourthly, that the Son is also before all things. And so this isn't merely a time thing. So yeah, we wanna acknowledge that the Son existed before everything else. That's true, because he's God. But I think what Paul wants to emphasize here is that Christ is above creation, He's in front of it, meaning that he's supreme over it. What Paul is saying is that the Son is the Lord over creation. He's the king of the universe. Yet he isn't just supreme over creation. Our text says that he's also the sustainer of the creation. And so fifthly, we see that all things hold together in him. That he's the glue holding everything together. And this might not be clear to us in the English, but that term, hold together, is in the perfect tense in the Greek. You don't have to know what perfect tense means, but what it literally means is that the Son has held all things together and that he's presently holding all things together. And so this means that there was ne- there's never been a time when the sun wasn't sustaining everything. And so, I oh, get this, this is so good. Even in his incarnation, Jesus held the universe together. That as Mary held him as a baby, he also held her in all things together. That as Jesus held himself up on the cross, that he also held all things together. And now at the right hand of the Father, he's holding all things together. Isn't that good news for us today when the world seems like it's falling apart? That we can take comfort knowing that Jesus holds all things together when we can trust him to do this because he's always done it and he won't stop doing it. What we've seen is that King Jesus is supreme over all of creation. This is because all things are created by him through him and for him. He's before all things and holds all things together. And so if verses 15 through 17 are the first stanza of this hymn, then verses 18 through 20 are the second stanza. You might think of it as like when we sing a hymn that we sing one verse and then we move on to singing the next verse or the next stanza. And so this brings us to our second stanza. Christ's supremacy and redemption. (laughs) Look with me at verse 18. It says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. What is this saying? Well, Jesus is the head of a new humanity. And this new humanity can be found in the church. And so while John was, or not Johnno, said this earlier, while Adam was the representative of the old creation, Jesus is the representative of the new creation. And so while humanity was corrupted by Adam's sin, the new humanity, the church, is healed by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus is the head over this new creation. This is what we see In the second half of verse 18, it says that that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You might be going, whoa, what's that word, preeminent? Well, it simply means to be in first place. So Jesus doesn't merely hold first place in creation. Jesus was raised from the dead, so he also now holds first place in the new creation, And so verses 19 and 20 explain why this is. Notice that verse 19 starts with that word for again. So Paul's going to ground his statement about Christ's supremacy and redemption with what follows. So first, Jesus is supreme in redemption because the fullness of God dwells in him. And so those terms fullness and dwelling remind us of the temple in the Old Testament. And so God was present with his people by dwelling in the temple by his spirit. Yet we know that the temple ultimately pointed to Christ, that he's the better temple that God's fullness dwells in. And this is why the apostle John similarly says in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That when John says dwelt, he literally means that he tabernacled among us. And so in Christ's incarnation, we see the beautiful meeting place of God and man, that Jesus shares in the divine nature with the Father, yet he also now shares in our humanity. That yet he's without sin, though. And so he's truly God and truly man. He's the true and better Adam like we sing, who is worthy of ruling and reigning over the new creation. And if you're in Christ, then Colossians 2:10 says that you've been filled in him. And so because of his fullness, we're lacking in nothing. We don't need to seek some new spiritual experience. We don't need to put our hope in other things. Why? Because Christ is our sufficient King, because the fullness of deity dwells in him. Our King is lacking in nothing, He's sufficient. And so this brings us to our second reason for Jesus' supremacy and redemption. Jesus is this is supreme in redemption because of his reconciling work on the cross. So the one who created all things is also the one who's reconciling all things to himself. And so that word reconcile means to change from one state of feeling to another. And so Jesus is taking a creation that is in rebellion against him, that's hostile towards him, and is bringing it into a state of peace. A state of rest. So how does he bring this peace to his creation? Well, it's through the blood of his cross. You see, it wasn't just humanity that was affected by sin. That all of creation was corrupted by sin. And this is why Paul in Romans 8, says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth, until now. Yet God doesn't desire for His creation to be corrupted by sin forever. That He wants to dwell with His people in a new creation where the presence of sin has been done away with. And He's going to heal it through the cross of His Son. And so on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. And we're now able to have peace with God through Christ. Yet there's a day coming when all of creation will be at peace with God. And this will happen when Christ returns to remove the presence of sin forever. And on that day, there will be no more natural disasters, no more death, and no more tears. All things will be at peace. And King Jesus will reign supreme over his redeemed creation. Well, this brings us to our third and final section of our text this morning. So far, we've seen the kingdom, and we saw the king of the kingdom. Now, we're going to see the citizens of the kingdom in verses 21 through 23. So, you might be wondering, what are we supposed to do with all of this information that we've received about who Christ is? Well, verses 21 through 23 tell us how we're to respond that in short, we need to continue to hold on to this gospel of hope that has been revealed in Christ. And so in, verses, in verse 21, Paul reminds the Colossians that they were once alienated and hostile mind. And because of this, they did evil deeds. And so we established earlier that this was because they were part of the domain of darkness. They were under the authority of Satan and were by nature children of wrath. Yet God didn't leave them in this state. Verse 22 says that they've been reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death. And so Paul similarly says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you want to know if there's ever been a good person Jesus is that person. He's the only sinless man who's ever lived. Yet he became sin for us, meaning that he took the penalty of our sin in his body. And why did he do this? Well, verse 21 of Colossians 1 tells us, or verse 22, it goes on to say that he did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him so why did christ die for us it's so that we could be holy and blameless and above reproach before him for the glory of his father it's so that he can present us before his father sinless it's so that the father will receive glory for making a sinful people holy through his son And so there's no better way to describe the citizens of the kingdom before the throne of God than this. Holy, blameless, and above reproach in Christ. I know there's probably someone here or someone that's listening today that needs to hear that. That the enemy wants you to think that God could never have fellowship with you. That God could never love you. And yet, God wants you to know through his word that you'll be sinless before him if you're in Christ, that he will welcome you with open arms. And so that sin that you can't seem to be will be gone. And that past sin that you're consistently reminded of will be forgotten. And all the wounds you've received or have given will be mended. And all that will be left will be loving fellowship with God. That isn't just a future reality. If you're in Christ, then you've already been declared blameless. That's your position in Christ. You've been justified. But on the last day, the presence of sin will be removed forever. And you'll live with the God who lives in unapproachable light. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to be glorious. Yet, even more so, we'll be with the one who's infinitely glorious. And so, do you long for that day? Do you long to see King Jesus in all of his majesty? Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, then seeing Christ will be your joy. Yet, friend, if you're not in Christ, then seeing Christ will not be your joy. It will be terrifying. You see, Jesus being king isn't good news for those who haven't been reconciled to him. If you're rebelling against God, then you don't have peace with God. And so when he comes to rule and reign in the new creation, you'll be cast out and doomed to an eternity in hell. So friend, don't wait to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Don't wait to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Trust in him today. We know that it's King Jesus' very heart to be compassionate towards those who, by his grace, recognize their sin and need for him. It's what drives him. So he's not asking you to clean yourself up first. He's not asking you to to white-knuckle your way into the kingdom. And the truth is, you can't. All you have to give him is your weakness. But the good news is that's all he'll accept. So I plead with you to turn from your sin and to turn to him. He's willing and able to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into his kingdom. And when you see him, you'll be holy and blameless and above reproach if you trust in him today. Well, what do we do as we wait for that day? Well, verse 23 calls us to continue in the faith. Notice that it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And so when we read this in the English, we might assume that Paul has some doubts about them making it to the end. And there are other passages in Scripture that we would call warning passages. But if indeed here doesn't communicate any doubt in the Greek, Paul's assuming that the Colossians will endure this false teaching and hold on to their faith. Yet this doesn't mean that we don't need to endure. A saving faith is an enduring faith. We talked about that a couple months ago in Habakkuk 2. And those who are truly converted by God will make it to the end. And so Paul wants the Colossians to remain stable and steadfast, which means he doesn't want them to shift or move. Specifically, he doesn't want them to shift from the hope of the gospel. This is the good news that was proclaimed All over the known world and is continuing to this day to be proclaimed all over the world and even in our city and so this is the gospel of hope that Paul taught Epaphras and it's the gospel of hope that Epaphras taught the Colossians and so how are we to continue in the faith how are we to endure the end we need to be in the business of reminding one another of our supreme and sufficient king. We, like the Colossians, have a variety of things that are calling for us not to endure. Maybe it's ridicule that you receive for your faith at work or at school or on social media. Maybe it's because of a difficult season in your marriage. Maybe it's because of a particular sin that you can't seem to beat. Maybe it's because you're struggling to believe that everything in God's word is true. Maybe it's because God hasn't ended evil in the world. Or maybe it's because God hasn't taken that illness away. But brothers and sisters, we can endure all of those things because Jesus is our king. He's supreme, meaning that We don't have to worship anyone or anything else. He's sufficient, meaning that there's nothing lacking in Him, and out of this fullness, our King provides all of the grace we need to endure. And so in this grace, He's given us each other to help us endure. We need to remember that this is a letter written to a local church not just to an individual. And so don't stay on the fringes if you're struggling. Ask one of the elders, ask me, ask other believers in this church to walk with you. That King Jesus' care for us is made tangible by the way that we care for one another. So brothers and sisters, let's lock our arms together and help one another get to the day when we'll see our supreme and sufficient king in all of his glory, in his kingdom. So let's pray that that day comes soon. Pray with me.